Good evening. Hope you're well this evening. <clears throat> and several months ago, I mentioned to you um, in an awkward moment, honestly, I will, I now know that it was an awkward moment. Uh, I was speaking with you about pea sprouts and the way in which pea sprouts have to interact with the environment, the sun and the earth and the microorganisms and water and so on in order to fully manifest their pea nature. And as part of that conversation, I had used an invented word that apparently, uh, I didn't even know what I was saying, honestly, and some people took offense. I was talking about pea nature. And uh, anyway, if you remember that, and if you took offense at my invented word, I apologize. Uh, that's a danger in making up sounds. Uh, in that case, I didn't even know what I was saying. So please accept my apology, and I'll be much more careful about my, especially my invented vocabulary. This evening, I'd like to briefly review last week because it makes a foundation for being able to talk about the theme I would like to discuss this week. Last week I spoke of the importance of ritual, and especially now that we're returning to the Zendo, <clears throat> the actual Zendo, the importance of the figures on the altar, for example, and the way in which the training of bowing and chanting together is a training for life. You know, the figures that are on the altar and in and around the Zendo are meant to evoke the characteristics that we would understand as noble characteristics, you know. And so, uh, for a while, it's important, I think, to externalize or to project those characteristics onto an image that is uh, apparently outside of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And for actually, for a while, it's helpful to externalize them because then we can see them as characteristics. And eventually what we see is that the images, the rituals, the setting itself, the zendo itself, the temple grounds, are actually mirrors for us. <laughs> and as I spoke at last week, you know, Eventually, we figure out that uh, those behaviors are not limited to those noble figures, or those characteristics are not limited to them. And those behaviors of uh, cooperatively bowing and chanting, for example, are not limited to our time in the Zendo. When we begin to see this, we are free of the constraints of our conditioned mind. And then we can recognize, oh, we can engage those noble characteristics anytime, anywhere. 
And we can arrive at that understanding through a kind of faith or through the repetitive, regular and repetitive practice of returning to zazen, returning to each other. And you might remember last week I mentioned from Tigan Dan Layton, a contemporary with Catherine, who still is teaching now, um, that he expressed, you know, in some Buddhist times around the world and cultures around the world, uh, enlightenment, for example, or liberation, freedom from those conditions, is something to be sought or something that we might have an intention to attain. And Taigen highlighted for us that Dogen's Zen, which is our lineage, uh, Taigen expressed it as uh, Zazen is not seen as a means to attaining some result, but as a ritual enactment and an expression of awakened awareness. So I'm going to ask us to make this leap out of the Zendo, even though we're just now returning to the Zendo. <laughs> uh, make the leap back out of the Zendo and see what is the application of this training to our lives with the notion in mind that this uh, ritual enactment and expression of awakened awareness is not limited to Zazen, is not limited to the Zendo. It's a ritual expression, as Taigen has spoken it. The transformative quality is not based on stages or prowess. It is simply the characteristics that we choose to cultivate and embody. I posed a question last week. What would it be like to enter every activity of every day with the same kind of conscious attention that we bring to our activity in the Zendo? So, these symbols, these figures, these rituals are all ways of kind of symbolically expressing deep Dharmic truth. And because they're symbolic, they're simplified. And because they're simplified, they're accessible to anyone, anytime. So again, underlining that ritual is training in collective behavior. This has implications for how we must behave. So now on the behavior part of how we act in the world, we rely upon the eightfold path that begins with right view, right thought, right speech, right action, and so on. And right view, we can understand as widely held and inclusive view, and this inclusive view includes the three main points that the Buddha taught, the teaching about impermanence, the teaching about interconnection, and the teaching about causation. So, Right view is wide, inclusive, and then right thought is specific to the situation. It includes right view, right thought specific to a situation. When right view and right thought 
are interacting in this way, then speech and action and livelihood and effort are naturally right. One of the ways that uh, one of the translations for right thought, uh, the word, comes out as right intention. So in my view, this expression of right intention is a little bit more accurate because it includes cognitive mind and feeling heart, both together. If it's just right thinking, as in cognitive thinking, part of the picture is bound to be missing. So I, I myself prefer to express it as right intention that is specific to a situation. The Buddha taught quite a bit about this right intention business. And there is a very specific sutra called the Sigalavada Sutra. And this is translated as the social ethics for a lay person. So this grabbed my attention. Here we are living in the lay world. This is not the same kind of guidelines that the Buddha gave to his monastics, the women and men who followed him closely. This is a lay person's social ethics. So first, as is usual with the Buddha, he kind of poses um, um, dichotomous thoughts and, and asks people deep questions, but kind of leads them slowly into, uh, so if this, maybe that, and if that, maybe this, and so on, in a very logical and um, accessible, this is the best word I can come up, logical and accessible way. So in this Sigalavada Sutra, the Buddha starts with talking about friends who are friends, but who may be dear to us and maybe um, we love and care for, and yet, if we just kind of take a deeper look, they're actually our foes, not, not our friends at all. So in this particular sutra, the Buddha went ahead and described all the ways in which someone who might appear to be a friend at first is actually a foe. And he described it as this, people who take advantage of another or who put themselves first, or who give little and take much. So I, I know I know people like this. <laughs> I bet you do too. And then there are, as Buddha describes, people who do their duty out of fear, not necessarily because they want to do their duty, but because they are fearful of some unhappy result. Buddha continues in this vein for quite some time, and I'll just mention a few more of them to you. People who are full of words instead of deeds. People who tell you how good their intentions were, how friendly they will be in the future. <laughs> people who try to gain favor with empty sayings, or people who give excuses about why they can't help when they're asked to help. People who flatter in order to get what they want. People who encourage you, actually, to do wrong or dissents from doing right. 
or people who praise you to your face but speak ill of you to others. So all of these things are in the cultural context of the time. And then there was a whole section of this sutra that goes on about gambling or being out on the streets at an untimely hour. <laughs> um, so there's a whole section that is kind of culturally nuanced also that I don't necessarily think is applicable to us. But those other friends who are, in fact, foes, I feel them in my life. I've known people like this. I myself have probably been a person like this. People who take advantage of power or position or privilege, you know, even if it's unconscious. So in contrast, the Buddha goes on now to say, so make companions of true friends. And this is how he describes true friends. People who are helpers to you when you're in need. People who guard you when you are momentarily off guard. People who look after your property, who are a refuge for you when you're afraid. Who see the task you're doing and provide a double supply of what you need to accomplish that task. We would recognize this kind of friend as a true friend. And the sutra goes on to express that uh, parents can be this way, partners can be this way, teacher-student relationship can be this way, um, an individual who has employees can be this way toward their employees. So the sutra is quite long and continues to describe all of the admirable characteristics of being a truly supportive companion. And this tells us something about human needs. We actually need a place to be able to take refuge. We actually need a place to um, ask for and receive help that is generously offered. You know, this is a natural and normal human need. So I'm beginning now to build a relationship between our behavior in the zendo, in ritual, uh, being aware of the movements of each other's bodies and each other's voices. How does this influence us to be actually true friends? In some ways, the simple awareness of other people and that we are co-creating the events in the zendo is itself the enactment of being a true friend. So that sutra was from the Buddha's time, and now I'm going to fast forward us about 2,500 years <laughs> to a woman named Stephanie Kaza. I'm going to show you the cover of her book. It's called The Attentive Heart, and it is Conversations with Trees. I first met Stephanie Kaza, not in the Buddhist context at all, but when I was uh, training to be a docent out here at Elkhorn Slough on the Monterey Bay. And Stephanie had come down to Elkhorn Slough to give a teaching about trees. And at the end of her presentation, we're walking back up the hill off of the water area, back up the hill the visitor center, and I asked her, it, uh, something like, are you a Buddhist? 
because the way she talked about trees was all about the interconnection and the the ways in which trees um, express how can I say it express their deep connection with the earth anyway she has a great admiration for trees and anyway she looked surprised momentarily when I asked her that question and she said well yes I am <laughs> and we could have a different kind of conversation I then later met her at Green Gulch Farm and we reconnected She's a master gardener and a companion with Wendy Johnson, whom you also might know as a master gardener at Green Gulch. So in this book, uh, she is writing about a retreat that she was on in Mendocino County. And it must have been a little, she must have been young in her practice when she was on this retreat. Uh, because she was definitely in a training seat. She was not in a teaching seat and describing what it was like to sit sashin, to sit retreat. Breathing in, breathing out, slow, deep inhale, slow, deep exhale, quieting the body, quieting the mind. And then she goes on to describe the setting in which she finds herself um, among Douglas firs. And then very soon in the morning, the first full morning of that retreat, she started to hear lumber trucks in the distance. And now remember, this is a person who loves and admires and understands trees. So she's hearing lumbering trucks in the distance in Mendocino County. And the only thing that her zazen mind could focus on was the sound of the lumber trucks. She lost complete track of her breath and her body. She was just completely focused on uh, lumber. And she spoke it this way. <clears throat> the instructions are simple, but the practice is very difficult. The mind is so naturally slippery, so deftly agile, so quick to dart off in any new direction. There is no escaping the local tree war. And yet, I find it supportive to focus on one activity, breathing slowly. <clears throat> Let's see where she goes next. Ah, yes. The next place after her seated meditation was in walking meditation that she begins to describe. Uh, my feet, the tree's feet, we meet each other in deep breathing that connects the body to the ground. I touch the pre tree's presence by walking the length of its roots. Remember, she's in Mendocino County and in retreat, walking. In the slow time of meditation, I begin observing each sound with attention a bumblebee, acorn woodpeckers. Each sound is surrounded by generous spaciousness. Now she's telling you the story of her retreat. And not surprisingly, next sound introduces itself. Lumber trucks again. <laughs> Loud, heavy, gear grinding, gas guzzling noises. 
invade the island of stillness. My body tenses. I recognize the sound of a logging truck on the local transport route between forest and cities. I know more than I want to know about logging trucks. <laughs> yes, isn't that the truth spoken? Hmm. So, then she goes on to describe her process and her process of being, please understand this, a good friend to herself in the process of watching the irritation she had about logging trucks and continually choosing to return to her breath. She says, This is the tension to find a considered way of acting not based on reaction. Building a different kind of sanity requires a stable base for careful action. Isn't that beautifully spoken? Creating the stable base for careful action. That's what we're doing in Zazen. And then her kind of confessional at the end. I find some comfort in our communal clumsiness. We each stumble along. Practicing with the others is a useful antidote to the isolation of insight. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? Practicing with others is a useful antidote to almost anything that is self-centered. So, what would it be like, really, to attend to our lives in the same way that we attend to the d details of movement and sound in the zendo? myself and these other beings, you and each other, co-creating our experience, fortified by our contact with one another, having a sense of place, a sense of belonging. So this is like breathing in, breathing out. You know, we uh, return to the Zendo and then we return to the, I would say, the harsher reality of a non-Zendo space. We test out the skills that we have just practiced in the Zendo, calming the mind, returning to center, returning to breath, returning to each other. And we're recognizing that that very cultivation of resilience teaches us. It doesn't matter if we're in the Zendo or in the grocery store. The behavior, the demeanor, the responsiveness to the moment are all the same. Kindness to a stranger equal as to a friend. How much more so kindness to a so-called adversary? <laughs> These people that the Buddha warned us about, befriend them. They're not really our foes. Befriend them. Be stable for them. Be clear. Be able to return to your own center. This is the training of Zazen. The person who is annoying you is your teacher. They are mirroring the places where we might have uh, unwholesome attachments or projections or assumptions. Of, you know, Thank you for revealing my limitations to me. Thank you to this person who is annoying me. At the very least, 
I can ask myself, why have I given this annoying person so much of my attention <laughs> or so much of my power when I could have been, you know, over at my friend's house pulling weeds for her or doing something useful? <laughs> so the same thing is true of befriending myself when I mess up. You know, I lose my temper or I act in unconscious privilege or I assert the power of some status over another without even thinking about it, you know, then I, I have a tendency, I have a high standard for my own behavior, and I have a tendency to speak pretty harshly to myself sometimes, you know. And as someone's told me years ago now, uh, if I had a roommate who spoke to me like that, I would be asking that roommate to move out right now. So why are you speaking to yourself that way? That was good coaching. That was a true friend. So when we are together in the Zendo, when now we're returning to more formal practice, we will make mistakes. We will feel awkward. We'll feel like, oh, now what am I supposed to do? This is a little different than Zoom Zendo, you know? Do we make a mistake in ritual? Yes, of course. So gently, just like Stephanie Kaza, return to the task at hand. Breathe in, breathe out, stabilize the body, stabilize the lower spine, sit upright. The statuary that we have are demonstrations of good posture. This is what they're modeling for us. So, have I made a mistake in a social setting? Yes, of course. Ap apologize sincerely and then shift problematic behavior or prevent it from arising again. Have I ever felt hurt by someone's words? Yes, of course I have. And now my task is to broaden my view, to see the whole set of contributing conditions. What else is at play here other than my small feelings? Is there a huge social injustice to address? Yes, of course there is. Now, figure out where our efforts are going to have the greatest impact, and we'll work there. I actually hope that this talk, and I'll close in just a moment, I hope that this talk, um, and last week's together with this one, uh, provoke more questions than answers. You know, This is a place of deep engagement. What is our practice training us for? Or how is it that practice is training us for upright behavior? Partly it is uh, working with our thinking minds. What we expect to see is what we see. Beyond what we expect to see, what is there? This is the inquiry. This practice is the practice of taking a second look, a third look, a fourth look, asking for more input beyond the conditioning of our minds. Include the heart in this picture. Include the belly mind in this picture. So our upright behavior, our socially ethical behavior, is directly related to being unconstrained by our narrow views. I will repeat that if I can say it again. Our ethical behavior is directly related to being unconstrained by narrow views.
So, the training in the Zendo. Can I ring these bells coinciding with the movement of the doshi and with the rest of the assembly? Can I time my bows to coincide with the bows of the other people in the room? Can I live my life with the benefit of all beings foremost in my mind and heart? This is the training of the practice we are in. Uh, in a moment, we can turn to some conversation. And I'll remind you that uh, we are recording that conversation now. So if you decide to ask a question or make a comment, your voice also will be recorded and posted on the website for other people who couldn't physically be present with us today um, so they can listen to it in their own place, in their own time. Um, so I'll close with our four vows and say a few announcements and then we'll open for a conversation. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. <laughs> 